Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Bonavista, Colorado. And if you remember, uh, Yeshua is talking about the investment that we make in his kingdom. And if the king ever shows up, what he can do with that investment. So last week, if you remember, God gives us our talents, gives us our things to work with here on earth. We become his hands and feet on earth. And we can multiply that only a certain amount, but then God can multiply that by thousands. So if we multiply one thing into ten things, he'll make it into a city. And the idea is that the kingdom um, is something that we're meant to participate in, um, but there does have to be a king. And that king is not only uh, just above everybody, but he actually is in the process of healing the world. And his goal is for his servants to be a part of what he's doing. Right, So Yeshua gives that through a parable, that idea through a parable. Um, and then what he does is he actually shows up as king. So he says, when the king shows up, make sure you do his work on earth. And then he sets himself up as king. Um, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the most important thing from this passage for you to understand is that, you know, a lot of people say uh, in the Jewish community that Yeshua never declared himself to be Messiah or declared himself to be divine or de- declared himself to be king of Israel. Um, but here, not only do we have him saying that he is king in a way that everybody seems to understand, uh, but he does it in a way that's a little bit unexpected, and it, and it answers some of the questions that people have had of who this king Messiah is supposed to be. Um, when he shows up, um, not only does he make his message clear, but everybody seems to get it, right? There's nobody in this passage who says, I wonder who this guy is. Right. That's something that we talk about today. Who is this person? Who is this uh, Jesus that everybody talks about? Is he really the Messiah that we've been waiting for? Um, And really, we hear all the time. There's lots of king messiahs out there. You know, for a long time, you know, you still get the Chabad guys driving through town with the pictures of the, uh, you know, Rebbe going through and saying he's the king messiah. But when he died, they stood up in front of his grave and said in three days he's going to raise from the dead. And he didn't. The difference between their Messiah and our Messiah is that our Messiah fulfills all the, com- all the commands of Torah and he fulfills all the prophecies in Torah and the prophets and the writings. Not only that, he declared himself king, which Rabbi Schneerson never did because he was mute, by the way. Um, and uh, he actually does the things that the Messiah is supposed to do. Um, it was slightly different than what people expected, but that's where the interaction between what our understanding is and what Scripture is, is the way it actually played out is always interesting. You know, people these days try to f- understand prophecy and they think they can figure it out by just creating a nice chart. And if it looks nice, it all fits together. But if back in that, these days, everybody did the same thing. So when the Messiah came and he came slightly different than they understood it, they rejected him because it didn't fit the structure that they had created. Um, and there's still some of that danger today. We think we can figure out exactly. I mean, it used to be Russia was the country of the north and now it's Afghanistan. And now it keeps changing. But people say it with certainty as if they know that it's definitely going to happen between this time and this time, or this thing and this thing. And they use signs in the heavens rather than signs in Scripture uh, to, to point to who they think it's going to be. And there's people who constantly say they're the Messiah, um, and they haven't been the Messiah. Um, there's only one Messiah who came and died and rose again, and that's Yeshua. And where we're at in the story now is he's walking into the city. In fact, he doesn't come walking in. He comes riding in, and that's important. Right? Because there are a lot of kings who just present themselves. They just show up in front of the crowd and they stand up in front of, you know, people and they get on their platform. But Yeshua didn't get on a platform. He came humbly riding on a donkey. Um, and we'll explain that a little bit more as we go. But if you go to verse 28, verse, chapter 19, verse 28, you see, after Yeshua had said this, right, the parable, so these two go together, um, he went ahead going up to Jerusalem. Now remember we talked about, remember we had that map and we were, as we were going through the book of Luke, we saw him going around. One thing I want you to realize about that map is Yeshua spends a, a, really only a few years going to only a few places. Right? He spends a lot of time in Galilee. He goes back and forth between his home and Galilee and then where the fishermen are, and he kind of goes around the lake a few times, comes down a little bit, goes back up, comes down a little bit, goes back up. When he gets to Jerusalem this time, this is the, the, the city of destiny for him. This is the last time that Luke, really, there's no more places anymore in Luke's story. This is the place. So when Yeshua shows up this time, we don't have to do anything else on our map but put a big target. If you still have your map, which some of you might, you can just put a really big target on, you know, mark it with red, Jerusalem, right? Because we moved all around. You know, he literally went kind of, walked around, came down. This time, boom, target. It was always his purpose. Um, 
And he went up to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember in Scripture, we talked about this word, that the word up is important. Now, Jerusalem, you always have to go up because uh, Jerusalem is on a little mountain in between a bunch of valleys. So technically, you always have to go up. But in Scripture, especially in the, in the Old Covenant, going up means something good's going to happen, right? So the people are understanding something good is going to happen. But what happens is that there's an interruption between the good and their expectation. But right now, all we have right now is this idea of who Yeshua is as king and a little bit about their misunderstanding of what the king would be. Um, but they go up to Jerusalem. So this is a good story, right? They're coming up. They come in from the east. It's a good thing. Blessings come from the east, right? And as he approached Bethpage and Bethany at a hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, now notice Beth, uh, Bethpage and Bethany. We were having a conversation last night that it's kind of hard to find Bethpage and Bethany this, these days, right? It, it's not as clear in, in Israel where it is, but you can follow a road. Um, and I did have a graphic, but I forgot to put it on the screen that literally on the top of the Mount of Olives, there's a road from Bethany, essentially, that comes down the hill, right, and goes right past the Garden of Gethsemane, by the way, and then goes underneath the, uh, the, uh, the Kidron Valley. Through Up the Kidron Valley, you go right into the Eastern Gate, or what is called the Golden Gate. These days, it's blocked off. You can't go in. In fact, it's covered with a Muslim cemetery, right? The reason why the Muslim cemetery is there is because they have an understanding that if the Messiah comes back, he can't desecrate a grave. So they blocked it up with rip blocks, they put a grave site in front of it so that the Messiah would never desecrate these graves. So when he does come back, and by, by the way, Islam believes that, that Yeshua is coming back, but mostly to get married because he didn't get married, and also um, uh, to finish what he didn't finish as a man, which is a whole separate problem. But they, to stop him from going to the Temple Mount, they blocked up the Golden Gate, and they put a cemetery in front of it. And we've talked about this before. What they don't realize is that when he comes back, the dead are going to rise. So there's no desecration that's happening. Then literally the, the, the walls will be blown apart. He'll walk through the eastern gate. But this is the first time. Now notice he comes in two times through the eastern gate, through the golden gate. The eastern gate goes right into the temple. All the other gates, there's a dung gate, there's the beautiful gate, right? There's the, the sheep gate. You can go through all these gates and they all, you have to find your way to the temple from those gates. Usually when you come through those gates, you have to wash yourself in some sort of pool. And if you go to the temple today, um, whether you go onto the Temple Mount or not, there's still pools there to wash yourself. In fact, they found more mikvahs around the temple than anywhere else because people would literally cleanse themselves. Exactly what the Haftorah portion said, right? If you're covered in blood, cleanse yourself before you come in, right? The people would cleanse themselves and walk in. Yeshua comes down off the mountain, right? He walks down the valley, which is where all the tombs are, right? In fact, there's even tombs of the prophets there. He passes all the tombs of the, of the fathers, and he comes walking up the hill and goes through the eastern gate as the king, right? Now, if you remember, what happens when the king comes, right? Through all the stories in Scripture, when the king comes, what do you hear? The shofar blast, right? The shofar blast, the people rejoice, the king is coming. And remember, if you remember, there's two things that, that the announcement of the shofar bring. Either there's war coming or the king is coming triumphant. And that's why they call it the triumphal entry. It doesn't use the words triumphal entry in, in the text itself. But the reason it's triumphant is because the king has arrived, right? This is what every story after the Bible has tried to mimic, right? Every story, right? The king is back. Everybody stands up. The king has been lost, and now he's found, like in Lord of the Rings, right? There's this, I mean, everybody has tried to pick up on this idea that when the king shows up, everything gets is better. Everything must be restored because the king has returned to his throne, right? That's what the expectation is. And you have to ask yourself the question, what is your expectation for, for, for Messiah? Is he king Messiah, or is he just savior Messiah? Because it's two different things, right? And they go together. I mean, he can save you, but then he also has to be your Lord. And with Lord, he has to be your king. And when he's your king, you become his servant. And when you're his servant, you do his work. And when you do his work, he multiplies it. That's how it goes back together. Remember he said, when I, when, if a king went away and left his servants with things to do, he'd come back and judge them based on what they've done with what he's given them. And here the king is showing up. And he's going to judge them based on what they've been given and what they did with what they've been given. What investment did they make in his kingdom? So it makes sense at the end of this section that Yeshua is going to walk into the temple, see that it's that they're ripping off the Gentiles, and what does he do? He flips the tables. Because when the king shows up, he's going to judge based on what they've been given and how they've invested in the kingdom. And this kingdom is meant to be a kingdom for all nations. So if you end up in the temple and the temple has... All the nations are coming because they heard about this great and glorious God of Israel, and then you rip them off. It makes sense that the king would come in and flip the tables, right? Because they're ruining what his purpose was for this place. It's supposed to be a place of refuge and prayer for all nations. And we'll see that. 
as we keep going. So he sends ahead two of his disciples, and he says, Go ahead to the village ahead of you, this is verse 30, and you are to enter it, and you will find a colt there tied, um, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, uh, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Now, I don't know about you, but if somebody came over and said to me, hey, nice donkey, uh, and just started untying it, I would say, why do you need this? And if they said the Lord needs it, I'd go, uh, sorry, buddy. I don't know who your Lord is. But but what happens is they go, so they sent ahead, and they found what they had been told them, and they were untying the colt, and the owner asks, why are you untying it? And they replied, the Lord needs it. Next, And no discussion, no fight. Right? I mean, literally, the Lord needs it. Oh, if the Lord needs it, take it. Right? Why? Because if somebody knows the king is coming and the king asks for something, the servants give freely back to the king. It follows the parable. Look, you've been giving me everything I've been given in life. If you need one of my donkeys, take it because you're king. Right? That's what's true in our lives as well. When God gives us something to invest in, we invest in his kingdom. He gives it back to us. We give it back to him, and, he's, and whatever he asks, we can give him back because everything we have is from him anyway. You know, people say, ask all the time, if you listen to Michael Rodelnik's program, uh, uh, I, would, I would say maybe 10% of the time people call and say, do I have to tithe? Everybody asks that question, do I have to tithe? And he says, well, Old Testament, there's tithing. New Testament, there's giving, and you want to be a good, cheerful giver, and he goes through like, kind of the whole process. But the sense is, is that if the king is asking, what do you give? Anything he asks for, Right? I mean, it's like the old joke. If the, if the grill in the room asks for something, what do you give him? Anything he wants. If the king shows up and he's the glorious king and he's triumphantly entering his kingdom, whatever he needs, he's been given by his servants, right? It's just the way we respond. And you ask yourself the same question. If Messiah is your Lord and he's your king, how do you respond when he asks? How do you respond when he says, I'm coming and this is what I need? Because the truth is, like we talked about last week, we've all been given gifts and talents. We've all been given things He's already given us the, 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 the insertion funds to invest back into his kingdom, right? Anything we have is given to us so that we can serve somebody else. In fact, I've heard one pastor say, every gift you've been given is for someone else, right? Literally, it's for the world. So they send him ahead. He gives this colt. Now, notice it's a colt tied that no one's ever been ridden. Um, if you look through the, the Torah and all the, and, and, and the sections in Torah about anything that's meant to perform a sacred task, Right? Do you remember? If you're going to take a, a, a sheep, right, for the sacrifice, it has to be a sheep without blemish that's never been used for anything else. Right? It has to be, if, and when God talks about, um, the woman who's going to bear the Messiah, she's supposed to be a virgin. Right? There's a sense that there, there's this, if you're going to perform a sacred task, it can't have already performed a different task. You know, you don't take a dirty spoon and stick it in the king's soup. Right? This is a, performing a sacred task. It's not only a cult, it's a cult that's never been ridden before. Right now, I don't know if you understand this, but in the, in these days, colts were, and and you can talk to Mary about this because she has a really fun time talking about the donkeys in Scripture. But if you look in Scripture, we have to redeem it from culture. Now, sometimes our culture blinds us from what actually is happening in Scripture. And here's a perfect example. Right, the donkey in the Bible is highly esteemed. Right, these days we say, oh, humbly riding a donkey, meaning oh, he picked a donkey. He must be so humble that he rode such a poor animal. But in Scripture, the donkey's the top animal. Right? Horses are meant for warfare. They don't get used for just riding. Right? Not until Solomon does any king even have horses. Right? All the kings, and if you look through scripture, you can test me on this. Go and look through the Old Testament. Just do a search for the word donkey and you'll find kings ride donkeys. Remember when Balaam tried to come in and and curse Israel? He was this really wealthy guy who was like this prophet that was really well known. What was he riding? A donkey. Right? Anything that's precious comes riding in on a donkey. Anything that's highly esteemed comes riding in on a donkey. Every king, in fact, when David was sent to Saul, his father sent him riding on a donkey, right? When they were made kings, the kings were set forth. When they were crowned, they'd come riding in on a donkey. It happens to Saul. It happens to Solomon. It happens to David. They come corn, their coronation includes riding a donkey. In fact, the Torah actually has a special sacrifice for when you get a new donkey, you have to kill a sheep, right? So you think, oh, maybe the sheep is higher. No, the sheep is the sacrifice for your donkey, right? And if you look back, you see when somebody's going to measure what wealth in Scripture, they say, how many oxen do you have? How many, how many donkeys do you have? How many camels do you have? How many sheep, right? I mean, literally, the amount of donkeys shows how wealthy the person is is because the donkey's meant to carry something precious. And if you have a lot of precious material, you need more donkeys, right? So the more donkeys you have, literally the more stuff you probably are taking with you, which says a lot about who you are. So if somebody wanted to know how wealthy you were, you could say, 
um, well, I have, I have 12 donkeys. And they would say, oh, my gosh, you must have a lot of stuff. Do, do you see? You must be really wealthy. Not, oh, wow, you're really poor because you have donkeys. You see, our culture, though, has put donkeys into this kind of, well, they're dumb. It's become a curse word. Do you know what I mean? These are dumb animals. You know, it's like the symbol of being stupid. But that's not, in Scripture, it's like having a really nice car. So Yeshua gets in his, uh, his king mobile, right? He gets on the donkey. And what do they do? They put him on it. Notice it's very clear here. It's very specific that he doesn't climb on. They literally put him on it. That's the same exact wording when they put, when David is put on his donkey and Solomon is put on his donkey. Other people put them on it because he's the king. I don't know if you remember. I mean, even in, in uh, Disney cartoons, when the princess is going, she could step on the back of the guy to get on the horse or something like that. Literally, they put him on the donkey and he comes riding in, right? Now notice, you would think, okay, Maybe Jake's making this up. You say, okay, Rabbi, maybe maybe you're just saying this because you want it to sound cool and you want to prove to me that he's the Messiah. And these days, maybe we understand it. But look at how the people respond. They see him coming in riding on a donkey, and what do they do? They start taking their jackets off and their cloaks, their outer garments, and throwing them on the ground and declaring him king. It must have meant to them also, if this guy is coming in riding a donkey, he must think he's the king. And we believe he's the king because we've heard the rumors of what he's done. And there were probably people there. Remember, this is Passover. Passover is one of the times everybody has to be in Jerusalem. The people are not only saying, I don't know if you've ever been to Jerusalem, but not very many people can live in the city of Jerusalem. And back then, the walls were even a little tighter than they are today. That means there's people living all outside in the countryside, all the way down into the valley, all the way up onto Bethany, right? Bethany and Bethpay uh, are actually about two miles from, from Jerusalem, Right? The people, if you look at this, it doesn't say that when he entered the gate, the people started throwing their clothes down. It's when he was at Bethpage and Bethany, they were throwing his clothes, they were throwing the clothes down. That means for two miles, they were parading. Two miles worth of people. I mean, two miles is pretty far. I mean, that's past Home Depot. That's almost like the highway from here, right? 94. Could you imagine that entire road full of people and someone walking, you know, riding in on a donkey and people throwing their cloaks down all the way from 94 to here? Right. Not only that, down 400 feet of, of hill and back up another 200 feet. Right. I mean, over the sand. This is a big deal. This is a procession. Right. So they brought it to him. They threw their cloaks on the coal and put him on it. And as he went along, the people spread their cloaks on the road. Right. Um, Josephus actually says this is the exact same thing that happened to Jehu when he was coronated king in Second Kings. Right. The people that. It's a tradition all the way back to Jehu that if the king comes riding in home, you meet him out in the countryside and you throw your cloaks down. So people say, did Yeshua really think he was king? Yeah, and all the people did too, right? All the people. I mean, there was literally miles and miles of people recognizing who he was. Now, you have to remember, how many people have been affected by Yeshua? There were thousands who were fed by him, right? Multiple times, right? Multiple people were, were so many people were being healed by him that remember they had to lower a guy, they had to rip a roof open and lower him down because there were so many people following him around, right? So many people had heard about him and all of those people were there on the same holiday, right? So could you imagine, I mean, you remember the old movies like the, like the, um, uh, like Ben-Hur or those old movies where it's like they're kind of peripheral to, to who Yeshua is and he gets healed and as Yeshua comes walking by his, you know, his kids get healed or his wife is, has leprosy and there's all these movies like that, like The Robe and like the, all these things where they're peripheral around him. It would have been that way. If you would have saw him heal somebody up in Galilee and you're now going to the Passover feast and he comes riding in on a donkey, you go, that's the guy who healed my mom. And somebody goes, what? I can't believe that. Yeah, that's the guy who healed the blind man. That's the guy who cast out the mute and deaf demon. And they all start cheering and they all start throwing their cloaks on the ground. And the other passages and other uh, um Gospels also say that they were putting palm branches down, that they were calling, screaming, Hosanna to the king, right? This is an exciting thing. And when the Lord shows up, how do you respond, right? How should you respond? He's given you everything you've needed. Now, now here's, here's the trick. If he's given you everything you've needed and you haven't used anything to invest in his kingdom, when the king shows up, you might be a little embarrassed. You might feel some shame. I remember my mom used to use that against me all the time. She'd say, if God saw what you were doing right now, she'd say, if Yeshua came back while you were doing what you're doing right now, how do you think he would feel? I would, and every time I go, oh my gosh, what if he comes back and he sees me? I mean, and it works because as I get older, I go, I, you know, I get into trouble and I go, what if he came back right now? That would be bad, you know. But the sense is, is that if you're on board with the king, if you've invested in his kingdom, not only are you excited about him coming, but you're excited to show him what you've done. When I come home and the kids have built something, they almost always say, Dad, look, I want to show you something. Look at what I did, right? On some level, 
We want to be able, when the Lord shows up, because we've been, we've been his hands and feet, we want to be so excited that the king is here that when he comes this time riding in the clouds, right, we say, hey, hey, uh, Lord, look what I did with what you gave me. And he'll, and the best thing that he could say is, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, the most amazing thing about Barry, you know, you know, Barry's life was not organized, you know, he wasn't organized, but he loved people really well. And the things that people remember about Barry was he, literally a kiss. You know, literally he kissed everybody. I and mean, I was actually hoping at the funeral that somebody would say, turn to the person next to you and give them a berry kiss. Because the one thing that he did was he made everybody feel well, you know. And it's amazing to me that God gave him the honor of dying on Shabbat after blessing his family. I can't imagine cooking a meal, sitting down and praying over my family and then falling asleep. I'm not even sure that I could pick something better than that. Because it's literally what you want. You want to bless your kids. You want to do that. And then you want to go to God and say, look at what I did. You know, yeah, I had some things that didn't work out. I had some things, but I tried and I invested what you gave me and it only got this big. And God says, oh, great, I can work with that. Right. And we talked about that last week. So when the king shows up, the people start throwing their cloaks. And when they came to the place that the road goes down the Mount of Olives. So here we see they didn't even get to the place where the road goes down yet. And the people are already screaming. Right. Do you remember on Sabbath? The whole idea of Sabbath is that you were supposed to meet the bride, that you go out into the countryside. The whole idea of Sabbath is you're trying to usher in peace. You're trying to usher in God's um, uh, peace in your life. So you literally, the rabbis talk about it, is you go out into the Sabbath, you prepare the Sabbath, and you meet it before it even gets to you, right? That's exactly what people do with, with Yeshua. And they don't all fully even know that while he is king, he also is the prince of peace, and that he's going to give them peace that they that they completely don't understand, and in a way they're not expecting. But at this point, they're still excited about what's going to happen. Now, many of them thought that as king, he was just going to overthrow Rome. Remember, these guys are under oppression for hundreds of years. They haven't really had their own government, really. You know, and all the leaders are corrupt. I mean, it's worse than Chicago. You know, this is like really corrupt. And everybody's corrupt and they're all sold out and the priesthood is a false priesthood and everything's kind of falling apart and the people aren't, they're not getting the justice the way they're supposed to get justice, right? The same way that Isaiah and Jeremiah cry out, where is justice, oh God? The people are asking, where is justice? And justice shows up. So they expect him just to flip the tables over, walk in, knock Rome down and sit down on the throne. Um, but he knows that he has a, a plan that's even greater than that because he didn't just come to overthrow Rome. He came to save the world. And to do that, he has to come in as king. And as the king, he has to sacrifice himself so that he can redeem us. And not only that, defeat death by rising again. So they come in and the disciples start, uh, begin joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they have seen. Right? So remember, this is exactly what's happening. He's coming in. It's triumphal. It's exciting. Right? Everyone starts talking about the miracles that Yeshua has done, right? It's pretty amazing. Now, you can do this in your own life, right? We do this every every year at Passover. We say Dainu. We say, look, God did this. It would have been enough if he did that, but then he gave us this. Would have been that. That would have been enough, but then he gave us more. We talk about it every year. Um, and, in fact, we actually talk about it every week. What he's done for us is well beyond what we deserve. I mean, grace is not something um, that we really deserve. Grace is something that we desperately need, right? And we definitely do not deserve. That's why it's grace. It's, we're not getting paid for our good work in grace. Grace is overlooking what we've done because of what God has done, what the king has done. When we say King Mashiach, we mean Yeshua. He comes in riding the donkey like every king in scripture, and everybody recognizes who he is. Why? Because he, not only of who he is, but what he's done in their lives. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is very similar to, you know, Baruch Abba, Bashem Adonai, but they put a Melech in the middle. So it's, you know, uh, Instead of just Habah, it's Baruch Melech B'Shem Adonai. So blessed is the king. Might be Melcha, but close enough. Um, but it's interesting because if you go to Psalm 118, and I just want you to see this. Um, Psalm 118 is pretty amazing because that blessed is you who comes in the name of the Lord is, comes from Psalm 118. And I just want you to see this because they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Right? Now, notice what the Pharisees' response is before we go to Psalm uh 118. It says, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Right? Now go to Psalm 118, because the quote here is, blessed is the, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Right? So Psalm 118, I'm just going to read it for you. Right? And I want you to hear particularly the ending, but I want you to hear the context of Yeshua showing up. David's expectation. Now remember, David rode a donkey. David knew what it was like to be king. David knew what it was like to have problems as king. Right? David understood and he wrote this psalm about this coming king. 
He says, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever, right? Um, we sing this song on holidays too, right? Ki le'olam hazdo. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his love endures forever. Let the fear of the Lord, those who fear the Lord say his love endures forever. In my anguish, I cried to the Lord and he answered me by setting me free. Now imagine this is what the people are thinking, right? When they're saying this out loud. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me if he is my helper. I will look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Right? Remember, they're being literally surrounded by Rome. And this is what they're singing. This is the context of the song that they're singing. They surround me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They swarmed around me like bees, but they died out as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but Rome, as a as a society, um, really doesn't exist anymore. People have tried to revive Rome. We have Rome as a city, right? Italy still exists, but the but the nation of the Romans that we're talking about here died off, right? Remember, Rome burns actually pretty soon after all of this, right? Burns to the ground while the while the, you know he plays violin, right? <clears throat> it literally burns Rome, you know, not in the way they thought. They thought Yeshua was going to walk in, sit on the thing, and everything just goes up in fire. But ultimately, Rome was judged for its Romanness, <laughs> you know. People have tried to revise it. It's a weird thing spiritually, by the way, as a tangent, just as a, as, a, as a tangent here. It's amazing to me how many people thought they were the new Rome. Hitler thought he was the new Rome. That's why he calls himself the Third Reich, the Third Kingdom. He thought he was the third installation of Rome, right? Um, the, the, uh, Libya, the king of Libya, who, who thought he was the king of kings, remember, said that he was the new Rome. I mean, people think that they're always the new Rome. I don't know why they keep picking the side that's going to burn. Um, but notice that Israel's still here. And Israel is still protected, and its people have progressed. One of the miracles of all miracles is that Israel is still Israel, despite how many thousands of years have passed. Mighty nations have come and gone. And here we have an example of that. He says, look, they've swarmed around me. I was pushed back, verse 13, and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my Yeshua, right, in Hebrew. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Right? That's what's happening here. Sounds of joy and victory because the king is on his way. Right? The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. And in scripture, the Lord's right hand is what does the Lord's work. The Lord's right hand is the Messiah. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand has lifted us high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has given me, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of righteousness and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. Now notice, he's entering the gates. We talk about, we pray, we say, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We can't do that unless we're coming with the king, right? The king has to come through the gates. And when we come in with the king, we usher him in. Then we come through with peace because we have him as our right hand, as our protector, right? The real, the real dome over Israel, right? The real protector. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. I will give thanks. And you answered me. You have become my Yeshua, right? Then it says the stone that the builders rejected had become the capstone. Now notice you go back and the, and what are the Pharisees saying? Keep your people quiet, right? Now notice, like all societies, I mean, the sad thing about the Palestinian state these days is not their rejection of Israel, is that their leadership keeps putting them in harm's way. The people are suffering because their leadership leads them into destruction, right? Here we have the people noticing who the king is, proclaiming who the king is, and the leadership comes in and says, be quiet. They think they're doing the right thing, right? The Pharisees think, look, if you guys make a big stink during Passover, the Romans are going to come in and kill us. And the people start singing this song. If our enemies surround us, then God will be our right hand. And the Pharisees say, no, keep quiet because the enemies are around us. Do you see the problem here? The leadership is so afraid that they're afraid of the enemies, and the enemies are supposed to be thwarted by the king. So Yeshua says, look, you can try to keep them quiet, but even the stones will start crying out in this one because the king has arrived. Oh, Lord, um, oh, the stone the builders have rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, right? Oh, Lord, save us. Oh, Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he is made uh, and made his light to shine upon us. With uh, 
with bows in his hands, join in the festival procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give you thanks. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. So the king starts walking in. The people take off their cloaks and throw it to the ground. And their praise is, God's love endures forever. He's, he loves us because he's survived. We've been chastised. We've been in problems. We've had Rome over us. We've had you know years and years of oppression. But the Lord has sustained us. Right, Our shoes have not worn out. It goes all the way back to the Exodus. And here we have Yeshua coming in, and the coming even before he gets to the top of the mountain and starts coming down, the people are already screaming. So some of the Pharisees say, keep quiet. And he says, I tell you, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as they approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept, right? Now, this is a pretty interesting shift, right? So you're imagining, you're following the king. There's guys with umbrellas. There's guys with things screaming. You know, it's like a big thing, and it looks like something out of... uh out of like New Orleans, you know, like do, 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 do. There's a whole procession and people are coming in and Yeshua starts crying. Why does he start crying? Because he knows that they don't understand. They don't understand the pain that they're going to have to go through. Um, they don't understand what's next. They think it's as easy as him just taking his throne, but he first has to do what he, what, what Genesis said he would do since the beginning. He has to head, he has to literally take his heel and stamp on the head of the serpent. He has to defeat death and Satan, right? Standing up as just another king would have been fine. If, if Jesus just died for our sins, it wouldn't have meant as much if he didn't resurrect again, right? The resurrection is, is the proof of who he said he was and what he did. Just dying for our sins wouldn't have meant as much if he didn't come back. If Paul says if he didn't rise from the dead, then all of this is just foolish, right? Because what he did wasn't just supposed to be about just dying. It's the whole process. The gospel is... That since the beginning, God's plan was to defeat death and defeat sin and to defeat Satan. Once he does that, then he can come as the rightful king, right? So there's a process that we have to go through. Um, I got an email about what, is, what does salt mean in Scripture. And salt is literally preparing the sacrifice to be sacrificed. The salt is the thing that prepares us. We have to be preserved and set aside. And literally, we get put through things that are uncomfortable and don't feel good. And we go through those things so we can be prepared to give our lives as a living sacrifice. Yeshua did the exact same thing. And he paved a way so that we could enter the gates with thanksgiving. The reason we worship and praise him is because he entered the gates first. And he blew those gates wide open. Right? The gates of death couldn't even hold back what he was going to do. And here he's coming in. And the people don't understand. He says, if you, even you, had had only known on this day... What would bring you peace? By now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone uh, on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Right? They didn't get it. Right? He, he knew that this, that the excitement they had was based on a king that they had developed. Something that they had gone, they had gone beyond scripture for their understanding of who God would be. And when he shows up, he knows that it's going to cause a problem. He knows that when he does what he's going to do, and, and, and Jerusalem literally falls apart after he's gone, that Rome will come in and destroy them. And literally, when you go to Masada, which is now the symbol, right? Every, when you're on top of Masada, they bring, every graduating class in the army goes to the top of Masada. And they fly a plane over, and the plane literally salutes the troops. Because Masada is the perfect example of, we, literally tried to survive the best we could, right? We tried with the best warriors, with the best possible things, we tried to survive without a king, right? Now, it's sad for me because it's a, it's a kind of a, a weird moment because I honor modern Israel and I understand the idea of saluting Masada because we died on Masada. And when you go to Masada, you see literally Rome built a, a, a siege wall so that they couldn't leave Masada. They literally hemmed in the entire place and just waited for them to die, Right? What was left of the people who tried to survive without a king died on top of that hill. And it becomes a symbol of, of, of fighting. But really it should be a symbol of this is what happens when you fight without a king. You end up dying on a mountain by yourself. You know, and it's, and there is a sense that we should honor those because there is a sense that we should have a fight in us to fight for the Lord. But you can't fight for the wrong kingdom. If you fight the wrong kingdom, you end up just fighting for a fortress in the middle of the desert that ran out of water years and years ago. Right? And when you go there today, all that's left is the siege wall. You get up there and you can literally see the, the wall that hemmed them in. So Yeshua, knowing that this is going to happen, says, look, you guys are misunderstanding what we're doing here. I am your king, but there's something I have to do first. He's explained it to them multiple times. And every time they said it, they got into a conversation of who's going to be the greatest. So he'd say, look, guys, I have to die, and then I'm going to come back. And they say, yeah, yeah, great, Yeshua, but who's, who, which one of us is the best? 
if you're going to be in the kingdom, which one of us is going to be your general? And he's going, hold on, guys, you're missing the point, right? And it's so easily we can get excited about um, what he's going to do. But really the question has to be, what investment did you make in God's kingdom? Because when the Lord comes back, I mean, even though it sounds like a little bit of shame and guilt, my mom's good at that. I have both Jewish and Italian guilt in my family. When Yeshua comes back, he is going to ask you the question, what did you do with the investment that he gave you? He gave you the bridge loan. What did you do with the loan that he gave you? What did you build? What did you do in his kingdom? Because when the king comes back, he's going to say, hey, remember those little things I gave you? What did you turn it into? And you're going to say, well, I didn't do as good as I wanted. Or I tried hard and all I got was 10. Or I hid it under my mattress and didn't do anything because I was afraid of what you would do. And what does he say? In that, and the parable all goes together because after he says that parable, he literally starts walking in his king. He tells them what's going to happen and they, they misunderstand. Now what the, the, what I'm trying to get across here is we should, in a sense, understand that Yeshua is our Lord, right? He is our salvation, but he's also our Lord. He's also our king. The Messiah is meant to be king, right? But the king has asked you to do something with your life. He's asked you to do something with the things that he's given you, right? And if, even if he's only given you one thing, he can multiply that into cities. He's already said, anything that you have, I can multiply into thousands. What are you going to do when the king shows up? Are you going to sing Psalm 118? Or are you going to say, sorry? You know, did you really trust in what he said he would do? Now they have to be put this, so he cries. Now some people don't realize that it's okay to cry. And here we have, this is the second time within a few weeks in this story, Yeshua's cried. You know, crying is a divine emotion on some level. Because you, especially if you know what's going to happen. It happens with children. I mean, you watch your children. You watch other people's children. You know there's a part of you that says one day their innocence is going to be gone. You know, you watch my son and daughter and you think they're, they're really cute and they don't know what they're doing and they get into trouble and it's kind of funny when they get in trouble. But one day someone's going to hurt them and they're going to make decisions and they're going to have to find a way to trust in God. And I, there's only so much I can say to them. I can't make them believe in Yeshua, right? They're going to have to come to Yeshua on their own. And I hope that I set up and I invested enough in the kingdom that they want to trust in that same kingdom. So when Yeshua comes in, he literally walks in the temple. He gets into the temple. And I don't know about you, but every time I go to a baseball game, I imagine the temple. I don't know why. But it's, you know, when you go into a, a baseball stadium, you walk in, and the Cubs don't do it as well as the White Sox. But the, um, <clears throat> the stadium is too open at, at the Cubs because it, at Yankee Stadium, they have these tunnels. And you come through the tunnel, it's completely black. And when you come out of the tunnel, like the sound of the stadium comes at you. Like it's quiet almost. And then it goes, Wah! and everybody's there. And there's like thousands, thousands of people all worshiping the wrong God. And they, and, but you go into the stadium and it's literally this rush of energy, right? And Yeshua has done this his whole life, remember? Remember when he was a, when he was a teenager as bar mitzvah, he went to the temple and he told them the right answers. Every year he went to the temple and he felt the rush of going to the temple. You can still do this, right? You can still feel it and you go into the temple today and they're worshiping the wrong God as well. But you go there and there's still a rush. Even though it's the wrong God, you still feel a little bit of a rush. But imagine if it was the true king. Imagine if it was the righteous king. Imagine if it was the king Messiah that we've been all waiting for, what that feeling would be like to finally go into the to the temple, right? So Yeshua, knowing he's the king and the Messiah, and he's been preparing his whole life to do this, he walks in, and what does he see? Them ripping off the Gentiles. Because he's in the court of the Gentiles, and they're selling sacrifices, but they're doing them with bad weights, right? And what does he say? It is written. Now notice he goes back to Torah, and he says, this is the problem that I have with you guys, right? He goes back to the writings, and he says, my house will be a house of prayer. And he, does, and he stops right there. Because in, in Scripture, right, in Isaiah 56, which is where this comes from, right, this is supposed to be part of the messages of consolation from Isaiah. After Isaiah says, God's going to destroy, God's going to destroy, God's going to destroy, he says, but one day the Messiah will come, and he'll make everything better. And he'll come to his temple suddenly, and everything will change, right? And that's where we get Isaiah 53, that he'll be crucified, and he'll be striped, and by his stripes we are healed, and by his piercings will be our burdens can be laid. Right? On him. He comes to do this, and he quotes from Isaiah 56. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And you should all know this because every Reformed synagogue says it. My house shall be a house of prayer for what? All nations. Right? But you go to most Reformed synagogues, and they are not houses of prayers for all nations. Right? It's not about including the Gentiles. All nations. That's what Goyim means, by the way. Nations. Right? He says, my house is supposed to be a house for all nations. And he cuts it off. And he says, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer. Then he quotes another verse from Jeremiah, but the beginning of Jeremiah, which should make you go, dun, dun, dun. Because the beginning of every prophet is bad and the end of every prophet is good. Because the end of the prophet is, is, is his salvation and the beginning of the prophet is his judgment. 
That's how every prophet is set up. So he goes back and he says, you were supposed to make this a house of prayer for all nations. Look at what I've given you. What kingdom did you build? Right? He does exactly what he says the parable. He gives the parable, then he actually does it. The king comes back and he looks at his servants and he says, what did you do with the investment I gave you? And he says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. And you made it into a den of robbers. He goes back to Jeremiah. He goes back to, remember, we, we, we actually were reading in Jeremiah. Um, God says, I don't even like your festivals. Remember how angry God gets? He says, I hate your new moon festivals. I hate your, 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 your holidays. It's just become a burden to me because your hands are covered in blood, right? I mean, literally, it's like all these days that you celebrate that you think are great. Now, some people use this anti-Semitically, and we don't mean it this way at all. But what we're saying is, is God doesn't enjoy the holidays when a bunch of unrighteous people with unrepentant hearts just come and pretend. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for his servants to invest in his kingdom, right? So when the Lord shows up, he says, look, I want you to be there for every Passover. I want you to be there for every Sukkot. I want you to be there for every Shavuos because I'm going to do something great and mighty in the, in the land. And from the temple, the Spirit of the Lord is going to overflow and it's going to fill up all the valleys and it's going to fill up all the valleys of the world. It's supposed to be from this spot is where my plan and vision starts, and it's supposed to spread to everywhere. And he comes walking into the spot where it's supposed to start, where the where the blessing for the whole world is supposed to be. He can't even take his throne, right? And he says, but you made it a den of robbers. He goes back to the beginning of prophet. He says, look, it was supposed to be a good thing, and you made it into a bad thing. Every day he was teaching at the temple, and the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people tried to kill him, or were planning to try to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because the people hung on his words. Notice, at this point, the people still are on board. Now, here's an interesting thing about this, right? The rabbis have tried to figure this out because there are two passages, right, in, in Scripture. One in um, Zechariah, right, where it says um, <clears throat> that the Messiah will come in riding a donkey. Zechariah 9 says the Messiah will come riding in on a donkey, humbly, on, on the foal of a colt. Same exact thing. The prophet Zechariah said one day the Messiah will come and he'll come riding in on a donkey. Why, how did he know that? Because all kings come riding in on donkeys, right? He understood that the Messiah is also supposed to be, supposed to be the king. And it was revealed to him in a way that he put it out in prophecy. But then there's also a place in Daniel where it says that the Messiah is going to come in riding on the clouds. So the, so the, the, the rabbis get all mixed up and there's a whole conversation in Talmud that says, look, is the Messiah come riding on the clouds or does he come riding on a donkey? Which one is it? And there's one rabbi who says, um, well, maybe there's two Messiahs. Maybe there's one uh, maybe there's two messiahs. And then remember, I says, no, 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 it can't be two messiahs. There has to be one messiah. But maybe what it is is if, if he comes in riding on a donkey, that means that we're unworthy. And if he comes in riding on the clouds, that means we're worthy. Now, I think that, that he may have got that a little bit wrong. But the truth is, is he was he actually got it a little bit right. Because when he first showed up, we weren't worthy. There was no sacrifice made. There was no sacrifice to cover our sin. Right? He comes in riding as the king. When he gets there, he says, look, did you do everything I asked you to do? Did you invest in everything I asked you to invest in? Did you take care of the things that I've given you? And it turns out, nope, not even in the outer courts of the temple did we do that. Right? I mean, you've got to imagine. There's the outer court, the inner court, the Holy of Holies. He's just at the outer court, and they already messed the whole thing up. They're already ripping people off. Right? So he says, what investment did you make? And they say, well, we made a lot of money off the backs of these people. After all, on our Shabbos goys, we've done really well. And he says, well, <laughs> way to go, guys. You did exactly the opposite of what I asked you to do, right? He came and we were unworthy. He was right on one level. We were unworthy. But what Yeshua is going to do next and very quickly in this story, after the triumphal entry, he comes in as king and he said, and what scripture said he would do all along is he humbles himself. He lowers himself. He takes our place. He dies for your sin and my sin, right? In dying for our sin, he then uh, takes the penalty of that sin. He actually, it says, one, one uh, verse is he actually his, almost becomes sin for us, right? Because so much sin is laid on him. He dies and then defeats death and blows the walls off of the kingdom. And he does something that prepares a way for us to follow him in that same way, right? He takes the little thing that we invested in, even the bad things. Remember we talked about this? Even the bad things he can reverse and make good. He takes even their misunderstanding, buries it, and brings it back into a glorious kingdom. So the gospel here is, is, is for those who don't know Yeshua, he's come to not only save you, but to be your king. He wants every good thing that you've been given is from him. He just wants you to invest in the right kingdom, right? We invest in a lot of kingdoms. He just wants you to invest in the right one so that you can live forever in his kingdom. He's gone away to make a place, just like the prophet said he would. And in the meantime, 
What are you doing with his kingdom for those who are believers? He may be your savior. He may be your Yeshua, you know, Yeshua. He may be the one that's head back your enemy and you know, held back your enemies, right? He may be your your but is he your king? Is he the kind of person that when he shows up, you're gonna say, Look what I made with what you gave me. Look at what I did with the talents and the gifts you've given me. Look at what I've done. All he's gonna say is, sorry, I don't know you, or well done. And you know, even though that my mom put a lot of guilt on me, the question really is, um, if Yeshua came back right now, what would he say? What would the conversation be? If he walked into this room or he came in riding on the clouds, which is going to be a little more obvious, um, what does he get? What kind of conversation are you going to have with him about what you've done with your life? You know, I ask people all the time to volunteer. It's not just about volunteering in the local congregation. But the point of getting involved in a community is to invest in his kingdom. Remember, God's given you a gift and it's for somebody else. And he just wants you to invest in what he has. He wants you to build your ladders against the right kingdom. We spend a lot of time and energy. You know, I heard a pastor say this week, um, the most important day of worship is actually, uh, well, he said Monday because they worship on Sunday. But the day after you come together and worship, the most important day is really the next day. Not today because we all come together and worship. It's easy to get, you know, your food once a week, you know, and then feel satisfied because our stomachs are tiny. Our stomachs have shrunk when it comes to God. He wants to expand our horizons. He wants to give us a life that's better. Remember, the whole purpose of this was that our life may go well for us. And that life is meant to turn around and invest back into his kingdom so that somebody else can enter in, right? We literally, our job becomes bringing those out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And there's a lot of kingdoms of darkness out there, right? And we have a lot of work to do. The harvest is plentiful, and we just need the workers to do the work. God has given you something, and he wants you to invest it. You can have him as your savior. You can get into heaven. That's fine. But what he's really looking for is servants who are going to help build his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, may we be people who recognize you when you show up. May we usher you in and invite you into our lives. And may you be not only our Messiah, but also our King. Not only our Savior, but also our Lord. Lord, help us to see you and to hear you and to walk in your way. In Yeshua's name. When I was a little girl, my best friends across the street were Catholic. Actually, I didn't know about anything having to do with religion or even Jesus. And they informed me that I would not be able to go to heaven, but I would be able to go to purgatory um, because the Jews killed Jesus, and um, that's what would keep me out of heaven. They're also the first people that ever told me about the Holocaust and people being made into soap and lampshades and I had no idea. 1975, I got to travel with Bob Dylan on the Rolling Thunder Review on two six-week tours and then a six-week European tour. And on that tour was Joni Mitchell and Joan Baez and Ramblin' Jack Elliott and Roger McGuinn from a group called The Birds. And we hung out with people like Ringo Starr and Jack Nicholson and just... It was a very, very exciting, very fun time, you know, very heady, just um, playing all over Europe, staying in the best hotels, riding a private train through, you know, six different countries. Um, it was great. It was everything that you would think when those tours were over. Rather than being elated, I felt completely empty, completely lost, completely, I just, like I had climbed a mountain and I looked over and there was nothing on the other side. And I just was asking myself, what is life all about? If it's not about, you know, having things that are just, just having fun, if it's not that, if it's not even that your art or your talent can fulfill you because these people that I traveled with were so artistic, so talented, but they had their own issues, what was life about? It got to a certain point where I um, I was so frustrated with life that I determined I will give myself 35 days, and I wrote this in a diary, I give myself 35 days to find a new way of approaching life. I am just sick of this brain inhabiting this body and just the way I even thought about things. During that 35 days, I contracted an illness called Bell's Palsy. I went 
As I was going to bed one night, I was brushing my teeth, and water came squirting out of the side of my mouth. And I lived alone in an apartment at that point. And I thought to myself, "I'm going to go to bed, and I'm going to wake up paralyzed." And sure enough, when I woke up in the morning, half my face was paralyzed. Bob's girlfriend, this big black Baptist woman, grabbed me by the hands and said to me. She started praying for me in the name of Jesus, and I remember that when she was finished, I walked out of that trailer, and I was stunned. And I looked around, and I thought, "What was that?" And the next day, I actually started seeing an improvement and feeling an improvement in my face, and I actually did end up going to Europe on that six-week Bob Dylan tour. One day, I was out in the desert with a girlfriend of mine, and we were in a motel. And I remember,、um, on my search, I was still looking for truth, and I opened up the little drawer in the hotel room, and there was a red Gideon Bible. So I stole that Bible and I brought it home with me. And I remember opening it up, never having read the Bible before, just opening it up to Matthew, and reading the words, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God." Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I remember thinking to myself, whoever this Jesus is, I could use a friend like him. I had a voice teacher who took me to a big church with his wife and with him. And there were about a thousand people there, and they were all just singing songs to God and enjoying themselves, and their hands were raised. And I'm looking around the room, thinking to myself, "Are these people crazy? And I'm the only sane one here, or do they know something that I don't know?" I came back, really, kind of just desperately, more wanting to know what is this life all about. And、um, a friend of mine gave me a book by C.S. Lewis called *Mere Christianity*. And I was in a bar in Austin, Texas, with my brother and my cousin's band who was playing. And I started reading that book. And as I'm reading the book, it was as if these scales literally fell off my eyes. I remember I started laughing, thinking, "Oh my gosh!" I know who Jesus is, because C.S. Lewis said on page forty-two in that book that you cannot call Jesus a prophet or a wise man or a good man. He allowed people to worship him and fall at his feet. Either he was who he claimed to be, or he was a raving lunatic, as crazy as a poached egg, a megalomaniac. But there is no room to call him good. He was either. Who he was, or he was a madman. When I got back to California, a friend of mine took me to a church, the Vineyard. And as I was leaving church, there in the back of the church is Bob Dylan, his girlfriend Mary Alice, and she looked at me and she said, "Girl, you've got to go to discipleship school." And I said, "No, I need a job." And she said, "Seek first the kingdom of God, and all else will be added unto you." And sure enough, I went to Bible school for five months, five days a week. Four hours a day with Bob and Mary Alice, myself, and nine other people. Today,、um, I'm married to Marty Getz, and we have one daughter who's an adult. And I work as Marty's manager, record producer, booking agent, travel agent, and、uh, he is my best friend. But I have even a better friend. And it's Yeshua, Jesus, and I have a very simple, childlike faith that He loves me.